Good morning everyone and a very warm welcome to Hillhead at the Grosvenor. It is brilliant to have Nancy back with us, especially this morning. Our service for the fifth Sunday in Lent will be led by our minister Katrina and everything we need to follow this service is both on our printed order service and on the screen. And as you'll notice we will celebrate communion this morning and again as ever everyone who is trying to follow Jesus is invited to take part. Thank you, Anne. Our call to worship for this Passion Sunday comes from the Gospel of Luke. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. I chose our opening hymn thinking it might be a nice spring day. Be careful what you wish for. Here in this place, new light is streaming. Now is the darkness gathered, vanished away. Gather us in. Gather us in. We shall arise to the sound of our name. Thanks, Paul.
Our prayer of approach this morning is based on the Lord's Prayer. And after we've been guided through this prayer, we will, as is our normal practice, join together in saying the Lord's Prayer in whichever language and whichever form feels the most normal and natural. So let's pray together. God, our eternal parent, we recognise the holiness of your name, a name so holy that the ancients could not speak it aloud, a name so familiar, so much about family, that it draws us into your presence. When we look at the world around us, at the confusion and corruption where even the best and most honourable political systems fall short, we long for the day when your rule will extend fully here on the earth we call home and your justice and peace will be experienced by all. We recognise that even though we live in a wealthy nation where there is an abundance of food to eat, and clean water to drink, that such provision is always vulnerable and tentative. We pray your generous provision for all people, not just for ourselves. There are times when we go astray, times when we are selfish or mean-spirited, times when we do nothing when we know we could or even should do something. There are times when our words or actions hurt others and there are times when the words or actions of others hurt us. As we ask you to forgive and restore us, we know that we may need to forgive or be forgiven by others. And that's hard so we need your help. It can be so tempting to live selfishly, so easy to slide into attitudes or practices that are self-destructive. Please lead us away from these traps and help us to live healthy, whole lives instead. We remind ourselves that all authority has its origins in you and that you have promised to be with us always to the very end of the age, forever and forevermore. And so knowing this, in confidence we pray together saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, power and the glory.
So we're well on our way through Lent now, and today it's kind of a hinge point. But I thought it might be useful or interesting just to think back to where it started and see if we can remember all the kind of key dates in that Lenten journey. So who can remember where it sort of all begins? What day in the, in the church calendar does it all start off? Yep, Ash Wednesday is when it formally starts. Well, I was thinking actually the day before that, but yeah, yep. <laughs> You're right, Sheila. Technically, it's Ash Wednesday when it begins, but before the day before Ash Wednesday, who knows? Shrove Tuesday. And what's, what do we do on Shrove Tuesday? Pancakes. Can anybody remember having pancakes on, on Shrove Tuesday? I'll let you into a secret, shall I? I wasn't going to have any pancakes because to make pancakes for one is just ridiculous. And I had a home visit to do on... Shrove Tuesday and the person I was visiting had got pancakes in specially so it was great so pancakes when we eat up all the the sort of um, luxuries or traditionally people ate up all the luxuries and would go to church to confess their sins and they would be shriven be shrived by the priest and the next day is Ash Wednesday as Sheila rightly said so what do some people do on Ash Wednesday we don't but some do that's right. So some people will go to church on Ash Wednesday and they will be marked with, a, with ashes, either a dot or a cross. And the ashes are made from the palm crosses of the year before. And that's a, a reminder that Lent it was traditionally a fasting season, a penitential season. So people would do that. Then we just kind of merrily float along for a bit until we come to the fourth Sunday in Lent, which was last week. Just give you a hint. What's special about that Sunday? Can be Mothering Sunday. Yep, it's, that's a, a relatively recent one. But are there names that are used for that Sunday? Damn me, we even told you last week. <laughs> but we've all had a sleep since then, haven't we? You're probably scared of getting the Latin wrong, but I'll, I'll say it wrong, but I'll say it anyway. So it's uh, Laetare Sunday um, or Refreshment Sunday. Um, it's the, the day that um, you get the day off from fasting, traditionally. Uh, and, and if you were in a high church, the, the priest would wear rose pink robes. See, I put my rose pink top on last week, but hey, what the heck. Okay, then we've got this Sunday. This is the fifth Sunday in Lent, which is called Passion Sunday. We'll come back to that in a minute. What's next Sunday? Palm Sunday, yeah, that's kind of one we're more familiar, isn't it? And what do we remember on Palm Sunday? <coughs> Thank you, Wendy. Yeah, we remember that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a, a donkey. And then the one after that, which isn't Lent anymore? Easter Sunday, chocolate Sunday. No? No? It's the day we remember that Jesus rose, isn't it? So Passion Sunday is this week. And it's kind of... Um, a decision point, I guess, is how you might see it. It's a Sunday when it changes. We've been travelling up with Jesus, hearing various stories, and this year we've been thinking about temptation. And then we get to Passion Sunday, which is where it all becomes very real. Because this is the Sunday when traditionally in churches we would focus on that moment when Jesus, in the words of part of Luke's Gospel, turned his face to Jerusalem. His mind is set, he's from here on, the only way is Jerusalem, and with Jerusalem 
comes the cross. So it's um, not one of the most exciting Sundays in Lent. It's not one of the most serious Sundays in Lent. It's somewhere in between the two. But it is an important Sunday in Lent. And I'm going to, I've picked a song for us to sing that I learned at primary school and Katrina learned at primary school. So that's at least two generations that have learned it at primary school. If you're my age and learned it in primary school, watch out for a few word changes. Um, if you don't know it, hopefully you'll pick it up as we go along. The journey of life may be easy, may be hard. With Christ at my, my side, I'll be strengthened day by day. Will you ride with the King of Kings who died for me and you?
Our first reading is from Luke 9, verses 51 to 55. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him, but they did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. When his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And our second readings, Luke 19, verses 45 to 48. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling things there. And he said, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes and the leaders of the people kept looking for a way to kill him. But they did not find anything they could do for all the people were spellbound by what they heard. As I've always said, Passion Sunday is probably one of the least noted in the Lenten journey that Christians undertake year by year. And yes, it marks an important transition in Jesus' story when his focus shifts from Capernaum in the north to Jerusalem in the south. And I think there are two things about this pivotal moment in Luke's telling of the story that are really quite surprising. The first is how early it occurs. I don't know if you spotted um, the, the reading details when they were on the screen, but it happens roughly a third of the way through the story. Many of the best-loved stories of Jesus don't take place until much later on in Luke's Gospel, so after Jesus has, has reached this point. And the second thing to note is it doesn't have much to do with geography because Jesus doesn't just decide he's headed to Jerusalem and go there. He continues to travel very widely. In fact, the first thing he does is he goes into Samaritan territory and then he carries on with his ministry in the north. When he finally does go to Jerusalem, an event we'll be marking more specifically next week, 
he spends his time in the temple, and that was what the second reading was about. He teaches the people. He goes to Jerusalem. He spends his time in and around the temple teaching the people, and the tensions with the authorities build up to a point where the conclusion becomes inevitable. So in Luke's gospel, Jesus makes a conscious decision very early on in his ministry that Jerusalem, the epicenter of all things Jewish, is the goal, the end point of everything else. Now, we know that when Luke is writing this story, a long time has elapsed since the events took place. We also know, because Luke's gospel tells us, that he's actually looked at other people's accounts and he's used those to create the structure. So he may have suggested or recognised a significance in the events that actually would not have been possible to identify as they happened. So what is it that happens when Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem? I think there are probably two main ways we can understand this. One is that this is a decision. He makes a conscious decision. He decides that he is going to go to Jerusalem and that everything else that he does is part of the journey to get there. So whatever he's doing, he decides he's going towards Jerusalem. That's a decision. That's one way we can read it. Another way we can read it is actually he has no choice at all. That this he recognises as his destiny. And it doesn't matter if he goes into Samaria or stays in around Galilee or goes even up further north. Eventually, he's going to wind up in Jerusalem. So what we see here could be a resolution, an active decision, or it could be a realisation, a recognition of, of something that has to be fulfilled. I'm not sure it actually matters which it is, because the outcome, the place he ends up, either way, is the same. And probably it isn't straightforwardly a decision, a choice between did he decide it or did he recognise he had no choice but to do it. The key thing to hold on to, I think, is that Jesus reached a point where he understood that Jerusalem, and specifically within that, the temple, was his goal. And recognising that would shape the rest of his ministry. He had this idea at the back of his head all the time thereafter. As we think about this moment in Jesus' story this morning, I think it's helpful, well, it was helpful for me anyway, to remind ourselves of the gospel context in which Luke tells us the story. I don't think I need to remind anybody that when the Bible was written down, when the Gospels were being written down, there was no such thing as chapter 9, verse so-and-so. That was all added later to help us to navigate our space, through our way through it. And neither were all the headings there that appear in, in modern translations of the Bible. They've been added because if chapters and verses aren't enough, we also need some subheadings to get us to where we want to go. And they are useful, but they weren't there in the original for all that, I'm going to use what we know as chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10 just to set the scene for this event. And I've just thought I'd stick it up on the screen, um, what the key events are, but I am going to talk my way through them. 
it's really striking that chapter 9 begins with Jesus sending out the 12 on their first independent mission. They've gone out and done amazing things. And people are starting to wonder who this Jesus is. They've had this feeding of the 5,000, which comes just after they've returned, an amazing event when all these people had a, a, an encounter with the, the wonder of who Jesus was. And then we got this question, well, who do people think I am? And, you know, we got the, well, some people think they're Elijah, some people think you're Moses, some people think you're John the Baptist, yeah, but who do you think I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. You are the promised one. It's very interesting that in Luke's account, we don't then get this um, second story where he says, oh, no, 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 that's not going to happen. We just have this statement, you are the Messiah. What we do have is Jesus' first prediction of where it's all going to go, that it's going to end up with him going to Jerusalem and being handed over to people and dying. And for the first time, we are also told something of the cost of following Jesus. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Now, I don't know how that would have been heard in its original context, because we hear it listening back, looking back, we know that Jesus has been crucified. So when we hear it, we, we read it knowing about the events of Easter. But the first people to hear it wouldn't have known. So did they see other prisoners going along the road carrying their crosses? Was Jesus even seeing people carrying their crosses at that point? And he said, actually, this is what it's like to follow me. It's this kind of a sacrificial life. We don't know. But they probably didn't get it the way we get it. So this is the beginning of a hint for them. that, that Peter said, you're the Messiah. Jesus said, this is where I'm going to go. And, and Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. It's, it's costly, this discipleship business. And then we get the description of this mysterious, mystical and memorable account that encounter that Jesus has with Moses and Elijah at the top of a hill. And Peter, James and John are up there with him. And of course, we know that story when Peter blurts out stuff about building tents and, and shall we stay here? Wouldn't it be great if we could stay here forever? Blah, 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 blah. Well, they do stay there overnight, according to Luke. And then they come back down the mountain to where the other nine are. And when he gets down to the bottom of the mountain, there is a man with a thick son um, who wants him to be healed and you can actually begin to see Jesus getting a bit frustrated here he just says you know you are a unbelieving and perverse generation he's quite harsh I think in his words and then compassion takes over and he heals the child and everyone's just marveling going, wow this is amazing goodness me you know Jesus and, and Jesus said hang on just listen to me because nobody's yet begun to grasp what it is that this is all about. Nobody really sees where it's going. Jesus has an idea in his head where this is headed, but nobody else does. And he is starting to get a little bit irritated with them. 
And it's not just the crowds whose behaviour frustrates him. It's even his own closest followers, the Twelve. They're squabbling here in Luke's Gospel about who is the most important the thing we thought about last week. Who's more important? Is it John? Is it Peter? Is it James? Is it Andrew? Is it Judas? Who is it? And Jesus just says, right, gets a child, stands a child next to him and said, actually, if you want to welcome me, if you want to be with me, then welcome little children. And then John comes and says, um, Jesus, there's, there's a bloke over there who's doing stuff in your name. And we tried to stop him, but he won't. And what Jesus says is quite astounding, really. He says, whoever is not against you is for you. So already things are starting to, to spread. There are people becoming followers of Jesus who are not in that, that inner group, who are not following him everywhere. There are people saying, in the name of Jesus, be well, in the name of Jesus, I do this. And Jesus says, that's fine. It's not just for us. And so in these little stories, we begin to see how things are changing. And they're starting to change quite quickly. People recognise who Jesus is. They start to ask questions. There are people starting to follow him. There are people starting to act in his name. And it does seem that he's getting a little bit frustrated with those closest to him. But it's spreading. He can't contain it for much longer. And he reaches some kind of a crunch point. And so we have the second prediction of his death. And then we're told he turns his face to Jerusalem, or in the NRSV, one of the newer translations, he resolutely sets out for Jerusalem. And he warns his followers again. What I demand from you is total commitment. Anything less, forget it. I'm not interested. What strikes me as especially curious here is two things, or three things, really. Jesus then sends out 72 people on a mission. Not the 12. This is another 72 people of his followers. So he, he hasn't moved yet. He's still in and around where he's always been. And he sends them off. These are the next wave, if you like, of his trainees going off. And he continues to move around amongst the Samaritan villages and other places in the north. And it's in this context, having just decided that, you know, the moment's come when I've absolutely got to go towards Jerusalem, that he tells us the parable of the Good Samaritan, one of the most well-loved stories that there is. When we examine the context, we can see it's been building up for a while. Jesus is well known by now. People come long distances to hear what he has to say or to seek cures for themselves or their children. Questions are beginning to be asked about what he might achieve. And now he begins to realise that sooner or later, and probably sooner rather than later, the end of his journey will come. And it doesn't matter whether it's destiny or a decision. It doesn't matter if he, he chooses this or he just accepts it. He knows now that he's got to go to Jerusalem. And that journey will take another 10 chapters of Luke's account. And it won't be a 
geographically sensible route, but there is only one way, only one place it's going to end up, which is in Jerusalem, the very heart of temple Judaism. And he, the place where, as we know, he will die at the time of the greatest religious festival of them all, the Passover. There is one third prediction of Jesus' death recorded in Luke's account, in what we know as chapter 18, and that's where we started this morning. He says, we're going to Jerusalem, and everything that is written in the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered to the Gentiles, to the nations, the foreigners. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he'll rise again. But even now, we're kept waiting. We now know, as readers or hearers of this gospel, where it's headed. But there is still a blind man to be healed. There is still a tax gatherer called Zacchaeus to be liberated from the, the, the temptations of his money. And there's still parables to be told before he finally enters Jerusalem on a donkey to unleash the events that we know as Holy Week. Whether it's divine design or human determination, only when the time is right will events reach their conclusion. Until then, his journey carries on and he still has work to do. So that's Jesus, 2,000 years ago. But what about us and what about now? It seems to me that in Luke's account, it's possible to trace in Jesus a growing sense of awareness of the trajectory his life will take, or at least that it ought to take, culminating in that crunch point where he sets his face towards Jerusalem. I think that the idea of a growing sense of conviction is a helpful one. I think it reflects the reality that very few people wake up one day utterly convinced of a path they should take. Rather, it's over time, in the light of experience, ideas emerge and can be tested out. And that's true whether we're talking about specifically faith things, about conversion or belief in Jesus, but it's also true about the choices we make about our career or our education. Not many people wake up one day and say, I'm going to be a professor of philosophy and, and set their life towards that. For most people, it will emerge over time. But equally important, I think, is that Jesus does reach a point of recognition and saying, that's the way I will go. For some people that recognition point will come on a journey that we've already been part of. We st we're going along quite happy, and then we begin to realise that, that actually where this is leading to inevitably is to be a doctor, is to be a teacher, is to be an architect, is to be a shop assistant, is to be a cleaner, whatever it is. For some of us, there will be a clear moment where that choice happens. We chose to do this and not that. And the reality is that for some people, those decisions, those crunch points can be life-changing. Whether it's a decision to follow Jesus, whether it's a decision to take these subjects or study that subject, to go to this town, whatever it is. But often, it's somewhere between the two, isn't it? It's somewhere between that 
moment of, aha, this is what I have to do, this is where I need to go, this is what I want to be, and actually this is kind of where life's taking me anyway. So the process and event, I think, are interchanged. I hope that kind of makes sense, and I hope it kind of reassures us that actually our lives, whatever kind of pattern they take, it's okay. Um, sometimes you hear ministers preaching for conversion and expect you to make a decision and pray a prayer and stuff. And you can feel a bit uncomfortable if that's not your experience. Or other times you can be in a, in a church community and you never hear that and you think, but I remember that moment very clearly. I'm not sure I fit. But actually it's kind of both or neither or a mess somewhere in between. The other thing that really strikes me is that Jesus didn't travel alone and he didn't travel in a straight line. And I suspect that's more relevant than what I've just been talking about. There's a saying that's quite often quoted at the moment that says, if you want to travel fast, go alone. If you want to travel far, go together. For the most part, humans function better in community. We can learn and grow together from each other and with each other. We can help and encourage each other as we go along. And the journeys we travel through life are inevitably messy and complicated. I don't know about you, but certainly to me, it sometimes seems I want to go there and I end up going there first. It's convoluted. Um, you know, it's that kind of thing. If I was going there, I wouldn't start from here. But we do, because life is weird and complicated. One of the things that really strikes me is that Jesus did not travel alone and he did not travel fast. It's a lengthy journey with flawed and failing followers and that was just as important as where he was headed. Sometimes I hear preachers say, well, you know, Jesus was born for one reason and one reason only and that was to die. As if we dismiss the whole of the story of the Gospels. All that mattered, he was born, he died, he rose again. So why did anybody write down what happened in between? Jesus didn't travel fast. He didn't travel straight. He travelled a convoluted route with people who were trying to make out, work out what it meant to follow Jesus. And that, for me, is really comforting because... As the words are said every, every time it's our communion Sunday, it's for people who are trying to follow Jesus. It's not about having it sorted. It's not about being perfect. We try to follow Jesus. We go through this messiness of life, trusting that he's with us. And one of the great things I think about stories of Jesus is his story travels on through time, that we are part of that story just as much as the twelve just as much as the 72. And then lastly, the name Jerusalem sometimes is used as a metaphor or a shorthand for God's eternal jurisdiction, the new heaven and the new earth to which our lives are oriented. And maybe Passion Sunday is a good day to remind ourselves of that. We talk about it sometimes, don't we? We anticipate God's kingdom. We try to live tomorrow's life today. We live our lives towards a horizon 
of the renewed or new creation. So perhaps today we remind ourselves of that, that we journey on together, brothers and sisters on a journey in the messiness of life, crying with each other, laughing with each other, serving by and serving each other along the way. Brother, sister, let me serve you. Let me be as Christ to you and pray that I may have the grace to let you be my servant too. And Jesus set his face resolutely towards Jerusalem. We are pilgrims on the journey and companions on the road. We bring our prayers for others and for ourselves. Let us pray. And first of all, let's let our thoughts settle on these words from Scripture. And Jesus set his face resolutely towards Jerusalem. What might have been Jesus' thoughts? Apprehension? Frustration? Determination? 
anticipation, anxiety, uncertainty, certainty, fear of the unknown, or a gallus confidence. Perhaps a mix of all these, and deep down we get that. For as we explore what it means to pray for others and for ourselves, we feel all these mixed up thoughts too. So what or where are our Jerusalems? What or where are the challenges which demand our awareness, our focus, our energy, our commitment, our resolution? We pray for our world. We pray that those of goodwill, and we would aspire to be people of goodwill, will turn their faces resolutely towards the challenges of today, enabling the promise of new hope, of a new heaven and a new earth to emerge. We name Israel-Palestine. We name the lands of Syria, Iraq, Kurdistan and Yemen. We name the lands of Nigeria, of Iran, Hungary, Malawi and the nations of these British Isles in the current turmoil. We name Rwanda as 100 days of mourning begin in commemoration of the genocide of 25 years ago. And throughout the whole world, including our own continent, where the ever-present bubbling up of fascism reminds us that constant vigilance is necessary. Lord, may we turn our face resolutely towards Jerusalem, towards the challenges of our time. We pray for ourselves, that we may listen for God speaking in new ways, in us and through others. That we may live in solidarity with the powerless. That we may become more compassionate. That we may embrace our experience, but transcend our prejudices that we may come to Jesus 
just as we are. Lord, may we turn our face resolutely towards Jerusalem, towards the implications of our faith. And today, for our own church family here in Hillhead, we pray for Esan and Annas, for the joys and security of living, working, studying and worshipping here in Scotland, but also the sorrows of being detached from their home country. We pray for Ruri, for the time he spent with us and for his commitment to the work of the probation service and for the training he is currently undertaking in South East England. And in our wider Baptist community here in Scotland, we remember today Jim Meehan, chaplain to the Royal Hospital for Children. And for our sister congregations in Cote Bridge, Dean, and Cornton. Jesus turned his face towards Jerusalem. The God who walked the road of wooden nails still calls us to serve and to turn our prayers into action. Come, let us walk this road together. We continue our prayers in the giving of an offering.
our communion today is going to be semi-sung. There will be points during the liturgy when um, we will sing our way through uh, a traditional liturgy uh, with some Spanish and uh, with some English. The words are on your sheet, so hopefully you can get to them. I think, yes, I have also got them to appear on the screen, but whether you can see that with me in the way, I don't know. I hope you will enjoy this very traditional sung communion. We come to this table not because we must, but because we may. Not because we are strong, but because we are weak. We come not because of any goodness of our own gives us a right to come, but because we need mercy and help. We come because we love the Lord a little and would like to love him more. We come because he loved us and gave himself for us. We come to meet the risen Christ, for we are his body. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. The Apostle Paul tells us of the institution of the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.
loving God. We praise and thank you for your love shown to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for his life and ministry, announcing the good news of your kingdom and demonstrating its power in the lifting of the downtrodden, the healing of the sick and the loving of the loveless. We thank you for his sacrificial death upon the cross for the redemption of the world and for your raising him to life again as a foretaste of the glory we shall share. We give you thanks for this bread and wine, symbols of our world and signs of your transforming love. Send your Holy Spirit, we pray, that we may be renewed into the likeness of Jesus Christ and formed into his body. This we pray for his name, in his name and for his sake. Amen. Jesus broke the bread, shared it with his friends and said, do this to remember me. Jesus took a cup of wine, shared it with his friends and said, do this to remember me. As is our custom, we will retain our glasses to drink together. <coughs> so we drink together and we remember. Your death, O Lord, we commemorate. Your resurrection, we confess. Your final coming, we await. Glory be to you, O Christ.
Lead us on, triune God, with the determination we need to walk with Christ wherever he leads, not just through Lent and Holy Week, but for every day of our lives. Thank you.